London, die größte Stadt der Welt, zittert vor einem Phantom. Der grüne Bogenschütze. Ein Film nach dem berühmten Roman von Edgar Wallace gibt Ihnen tausend Rätsel auf. Sie müssen jetzt sehr vorsichtig sein. Hören Sie, Bellamy. Bellamy ist gewarnt. Er weiß, dass wir jemanden in den Kragen wollen. Wer ist denn dieser Lamont? Wenn der Schwein der Freund von der Howard ist. Ist er bestimmt. Dann muss er auch der grüne Bogenschütze sein. Wer dem Geheimnis zu nahe kommt, ist verloren. Pausenlos ist die Polizei im Einsatz. Wer ist der geheimnisvolle Unbekannte? Hübsches Grün, was? In der Farbe wollte ich mir letzte Woche einen Pullover kaufen. Es ist nur schade, dass Sie den grünen Bogenschützen nicht erkannt haben. Endlich hat er sich mal gezeigt. Jeder ist verdächtig. In diesem neuen Edgar-Wallace-Film unter der Regie des Krimi-Spezialisten Jürgen Roland. Sag dem Sergeant, dass ich es nicht gewesen bin. Was? Ich suche eine Frau. Hier? Hello everyone and welcome back to the Bloody Pit. Today I have a new victim, new guest, new uh, new person under the uh, umbrella of the Bloody Pit. Someone who's actually kind of been uh, a fan of, of uh, the podcasts that at least Troy and I have been doing for years. And uh, someone who I should have had on either the Nashy cast or the Bloody Pit a long time ago. But uh, basically I just waited for him to write his second book. Uh, because, you know, one book, okay, sure, anybody can do that, right? Right? But two, well, now Nicholas Schlegel has published his second book. And uh, much like his first book... He's delving into dark areas of cinema that few tend to explore. Uh, Mr. Slagle, how do you choose your topics? <laughs> That's a great, great question, Rod. Uh, no, please call me Nick. Um, how do I choose my topics? Well, I have, I have to admit, your my assumption would be, well, nobody's talking about this, right? Yeah. Um, as 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 you asked the question. I kind of like um, immediately thought of what the core 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 response would be, and it, it's a little biographical, as I'm sure it would be with you or any of us. Really, is is I, you and I are around the same age, you know, a couple Gen Xers, and um, so growing up as a kid in the '70s, uh, we were, you know, bathed in in a lot of uh, re reruns and syndication. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and, and um, real art, you know, real art movie packages going out to UHF and and uh, VHF stations, and so you know the the horror movie hosts, uh, Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein, reruns of Hammer and Universal in the early '70s. That kind of was like you know the the, the pop culture that I I enjoyed the most as a kid. Um, just the sort of absorbing as much of the Universal stuff and the hammer stuff as I possibly could. Um, and, and obviously there's no, this is a pre-cable, pre-VCR pre society. Yeah. So you were, 
you, you were at the whim of, of the, the local UHF and VHF um, frequencies, basically. So uh, you, it was appointment watching, you know, and, and uh, so you made sure to catch this movie at that time. And as I got older, uh, you know, I, I just became so much more interested in horror, science fiction, fantasy, uh, became a true monster kid, really. And, um, and just learned everything I could. But as you know, back then, there just really wasn't that much written seriously about the horror movie. Um, you know, there's, of course, like, il- there was illustrated surveys, you know, Carlos Clarence and so on. And uh, there was uh, books, sort of like some, some early coffee table books that were more collections of images yeah, yeah. than they were. Still, still, co- still collections with, you know, a few choice paragraphs here and there. Precisely. And, and you read the same ones I did. And then, you know, so when a book would come out in the 80s or 90s on the subject, it was a real big deal. Um, and like you, I'm sure by the time uh, I was in my late 20s, um, I, I mid to late 20s, I felt like I'd conquered U.S. like North American horror, you know, like I knew all the horror movies that were made in the United States, or not, not all of them, a good percentage of them, and you know, as well as Canada and England and Italy too. You know, like I felt like I had seen as much as I could get my hands on using, like the incredibly uh, uh, Michael Weldon's encyclopedia, you know, psychotronic yeah. and things like that. You know, just trying to get through every damn film you possibly can. And of course, by the nineties. Um, you know, with cable TV, and you could always set your VCR to record that obscure film that just wasn't out on VHS or later DVD. So um, I just got really thirsty for a lot of international horror, and fo- and and you know, as the late '90s turned into the early 2000s, and we went into sort of like this new, really globalized, decentralized uh, media environment of the 21st century. A lot of access to those films opened up, uh, particularly with like really great companies like Synapse, for example, leading the way in restoration and in finding, you know, uh, those those buried, neglected treasures out there that need restoration. I was trying to do the same thing, kind of bookwise. You know, I was like, what kind of just sort of scanned the the uh, historical and scholarly landscape and say. Well, what hasn't been written about? You know, by that time, I was in grad school, um, and then uh, when I started a PhD in 2005, uh, that was the first thing my advisor asked me was, "Well, what's your dissertation topic?" And I, I had no idea. You know, I, I mean, I hadn't even thought about it. It was like first first semester of coursework. But what I did was I sort of like married two or three different uh, threads together: the thread of loving horror but also feeling like I, I wanted to, to do much more international stuff with horror. So that, that, that thread came together. Uh, it came together with also sort of like the, the um, lack of any um, real uh, work on Spanish horror films at that time. There just wasn't that yeah. much out yeah. there. Uh, what had been was in, uh, in Spanish, uh, and there were essays and things here, but... In most, in most academic books, Spain had been written about from, from the you know, standpoint, the viewpoint of like post-Franco years, uh, the, the military dictatorship in the Franco years, 
And then when they did get to the sort of opening up of Spain in the 70s and the ratification of their constitution, uh, they focused on more legit uh, genres. And I'm like, well, what about the, you know, the, the paella westerns and the, uh, um, the, the, you know, uh, Iberian sex comedies and the, the Destapes. So the and various the, kinds uh, of thrillers the, that were being made, yeah. Yeah, what about those that kept the industry afloat? Why are you putting such uh, such an academic point on this by not talking about these other really vitally important genres from an economic standpoint? And that, that led me to feel like there was just some sort of bias going on. So to, to answer your question, I guess you put all those different threads together, my love of travel I didn't mention that, but I had spent a lot of time in Spain as a kid. So huh. Spain, loving horror movies, putting that together with Spanish horror, realizing the great story behind Spanish horror, um, and realizing that there really wasn't much in English at the time when the book came out in 2015 on the subject. So, and then we I should tell people. We should tell people, by the way, the name of the book, in case we we have completely forgotten <laughs> to actually mention it. Your first book was called Sex, Sadism, Spain, and Cinema. The Spanish horror film, and it came out ooh, seven years ago now, mm-hmm. and uh, is is one of the first one of the first books that really seems to try to try to intelligently and cogently tackle the, that particular subject, and therefore it's uh, it, it's an it, it's an extremely important bit of reference work for studying or even just trying to understand those films from that period. Thanks, Rod. That's a that's a, a really fine compliment to pay any author. Uh, oh no, that's that's but it's completely true. I mean, we I I was just using this book. The I was just using your book uh, about three weeks ago, doing some prep work for a commentary track I was working on, just to just to have just to make sure that there was uh, just to make sure that my my memory of something lined up as far as perception was concerned, and so. Well, that, yeah, that 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 first book was 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 an exceptional piece of work and uh, still stands up today. I mean, yeah, it's only been seven years. Let's see what it's like in thirty years, buddy. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> see if I'm still around myself. I I really got extraordinary help from Carlos Aguilar, who was you know who had really written the 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 thrust of the main work in Spanish uh, in, in in Spain, and so I reached out to him, and he had set up interviews with like Eugenio Martín and Jorge Grau and uh, journalists from that era uh, and so it was it was really through Carlos doing the research back in 2008 uh, on that particular book um, that that everything kind of opened up plus I just knew Spain really well I'd been I'd been going there since I was two years old and was actually speaking Spanish before I was speaking English so it's just a culture that I'm familiar with and very at home in uh, nothing could be further from the truth with Germany, though. So, uh, so <laughs> yes, talking about the the new book, the second the second book, which uh, I have to admit I've thoroughly enjoyed. I'm trying to write a, 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 a at least fairly intelligent review of it to to prove my worth to your publisher. But uh, <laughs> the thanks, man. That's really kind of you to say that as well. Like I. I, I appreciate that. Um, I'm, I'm glad you enjoyed it. It was it was um, tentative might be too strong a word, but it was tentative subject matter for me. Um, well, uh, let's let, let's let people know what the title of this book is. the The new one is called German Popular Cinema and the Rialto Crimi Phenomena, uh, subtitled Dark Eyes of London. Uh, now, 
here's the thing. Some of the words in that title, some people, I mean, I'm hoping people listening to this podcast have a vague idea of what this, what the uh, the last three were, well, the last. <laughs> Rinaldo Grimmie is very yeah. confusing, yes. Yeah, the, the, let's, let's uh, maybe we should start with a definition of the Krimi. How about that? To just to, just to just ease people into this, uh, into this subject at all. For those who are unaware, what is a Krimi? Well, no, I mean, that is kind of like a, a, a chunk of the book is dedicated to sort of like trying to flesh out this hybrid of different genres for the reader. Um, yeah. It's the, 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 the Krimi is, you know, at its most basic, it's a thriller or a mystery. I mean, that's kind of, you know, cry, Krimi is, is short for crime in German. Criminal uh, is the the longer form of the word. Criminal film uh, means crime film. You know, like when you're looking through a TV guide back in the day, and it says, you know, movie on the ten o'clock channel seven. You know, thriller. I mean, that's so like that's kind of the oh, crime crime drama. Crime drama. Thank you. Yeah, crime drama, and and then of course the mixture of thriller into it. That's I mean that's really the crimi at its most basic. The the majority of them are based off of the works of the, the, the English author Edgar Wallace, a very prodigious author, you know, wrote tirelessly and endlessly until his, his early death. Um, uh, staggering numbers of, of novels, plays, short stories, just supremely prodigious in his output. Um, and and as a result, I mean he was really kind of a a, mach- a trope machine as well. So I mean, a lot of the um, the books just have a revolving door of of uh, you know convenient trite tropes that are associated with the genre. Uh, they're kind of just reused uh, over and over and over, like a repeat sign on um, you know on a, on a uh, notes of music. It's and so um, that made them not the greatest literature in the world. But it gave them a tremendous potential for cinema. And indeed, like uh, Wallace's novels, which are crime thrillers, essentially, sometimes whodunits. To me, the, the more interesting of the, of, of the genre are always the ones that are centered around a mystery, whether, you know, whether trying to discern who the murderer might be or, you know, how or even just how a crime was committed. Uh of course, that's that's far from the only pleasure I derive from these things. But it's the mystery that's that that always kind of is the engine that moves everything forward. Uh, the 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 thread that you're following, no matter how convoluted everything gets, that's what I find is the is the the basic takeaway is what you're really you know you're 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 counting down the minutes until you can figure out who the actual killer is or who the actual criminal is or who's behind the mask or something of that nature. Yeah, that's a that's a really really good definition because you you get to the core of what the genre offers, which is, you know, in no matter if it's the first film or the last film, they're they're basically mysteries. The other elements that are tacked on later, thing you know, borrowing from the yeah. horror movie genre, um, and and other genres, in you know, borrowing certainly from early film noir, which also you know taps into the whole crime. Uh, um, genre and Germany's nostalgia for that after the Second World War. Uh, those are like additives, you know, that kind of like um, create a, a really fascinating stew-like approach to to, to the movies. Um, but they're kind of you know in in made in, in like three distinct periods too. The yes, beginning 
I was little gl- year. I was glad to have somebody finally define those those periods because I've always felt that. The my, my the way I've always phrased it, and you you did a much better job, of course, is that the the Krimis started off with uh started off with a wink and a nod, and became crueler over time. That's very true, yeah, um, very much so, and that that gets into, you know, our defining of the genre uh from its origins in like the late fifties to its sort of burnout in the early seventies as cultural dictates kind of you know um changed so did the films the 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 zeitgeist bridges three three particular decade decades there from the late 50s to the 70s so much had changed so the films uh really are kind of reflective of those particular periods the the late 50s early 61s all have a certain feel they're black and white yeah um and you know they're they're more or less faithful to the plots of the novels there's a lot of experimentation in the middle years, a switch over to color, uh, the embracing of more, you know, more genre elements coming in, um, and then and then the transition over into color. As you say, we we go from it gets a little, it gets you know more sinister, it gets a little more, it gets more bloody, gets more sexualized, um, and just comes farther and farther and farther away from Wallace. Which I found interesting. You you pointed out something that uh, I had kind of picked up on myself, uh, especially with the, the the film that we're going to talk about here in a little while, because it was the first time I'd uh, I'd ever been able to sit down and kind of compare and contrast uh, the adaptation of one of Wallace's novels into one of these Krimi films in Germany directly to the novel itself. Is I mean, it's the first time I've ever been able to like to to. Uh, very close, very very close to the viewing of the film, or actually it was a rewatch of the film. I'd already I'd seen it a few years before. Uh, uh-huh. To sit down and read the novel and to realize that one of the things that drove me crazy about the Green Archer, uh, one of the nineteen sixty one Krimis, uh, stems from it being one of those first phase Rialto Krimi films, which is where they seem to try very 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 hard to keep everything in the novel in the movie regardless of how <laughs> cluttered and insane it makes the movie <laughs> it's very true they are just a hodgepodge of uh i mean trying to there were times in the book where i was like it was sheer torture to to try and write a, a plot synopsis yeah our mutual friend uh mark clark is one of the very few people i know that excels at taking uh, com- complicated plots and getting it down to 60 words. Um, I, I tried, but the, the the thing is, is that, yeah, the, the plots are, are just utterly ridiculous. Oh, They're yeah, hard and with The Green Archer out. especially, have you, if, you, if you ever read the novel, Wallace's novel, it, honestly, it, I've read several of his novels over the years. This is the mm-hmm. first one where I, while reading it, I kept thinking to myself, he is making this shit up as he goes along. <laughs> because it yeah i mean i read i only read one novel you know that was and and a couple biographies but um i felt the one the one that i read which was the the terrible people um the film the 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 film right before the green archer yeah um you know i i got enough of wallace's style from reading that and i had a good time with it you know he he clearly 
um, knows his way around the genre and thing, keeps things moving very quickly, a little too quickly, as you point out. It's hard to, you know, I found myself constantly going back several pages to figure out who was who. <laughs> well, we, well, it is not just that. Uh, in the Green Archer, in the novel, there comes a point, and the movie handles handles it better than the novel does, mainly because the the movie is only ninety minutes long. So we and, and they're trying to keep every single freaking character in the novel in the film, which was a mistake. I mean, it really was. But the 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 problem in the novel is that we spend so much time with certain characters. That there's one particular character, uh, Julius Savini, who does a what can only be termed a face turn at a certain point in the film, where he we're inside his head for a few for several chapters of of the novel, and we know that he's a criminal and he's a thief, and that he's you know has this uh, background where he did some time in jail, and so we don't really we we don't really in the novel have any any real. Uh, desire to i don't know empathize with him in any way and so okay. when he almost there comes a point in the novel where just out of the blue he suddenly decides well i can't let this happen i'm gonna i'm gonna save this person from abel bellamy the bad guy the, the truly vicious you know american millionaire scumbag who's you know bought a castle in england and is uh, doing dastardly things uh, but in the so in the novel when he does this it's a, it's a, it's one of those things where it's like he just didn't have time to introduce another character, and he needs a character to do this, right? That's what it feels like. We're just going to shift this guy's personality just slightly and push him over into the into the. And we're going to put a white hat on him for just a little while here and see what happens. Whereas it works a little better in the film because the character, like I say, all the characters are there. God save us, and. The, it, we haven't spent so much time with him that we've, you know, cemented a, an opinion of him. So when he Julius is the uh, is Bellamy's um, valet. He's kind of his secretary, the man who takes care, you know, man who takes care of the bills and keeps, you know, keeps the house, keeps all the servants in line, and all this right. that and the other. Right. It's played played by a stalwart of of, of the Rialto. Uh, factory here. His name's Harry Wustenhagen. <laughs> yes, he's he, he's a lot of fun. He's amazing. He was in a. What kills me is I I I, I realized that he was in several of the uh, several of the Krimis, but what I wasn't aware was that uh, he's the guy. Who, he, he's the guy who who uh, who dubbed uh, Christopher Lee in those German Sherlock Holmes movies. <laughs> I was like, well, if I did know that, I forgot. That's awesome. I know, I know. It's like, what in the hell? Why? why? To the, to this day, I mean, it's like I, I enjoy those films, but it's just every t- every time it's like the uh, we we sat down and watched the uh, the Krimi that Christopher Lee. It just came out on that Severin Eurocult box set from Severin, the uh, the Secret of the Red Orchid. Sure. And uh, Christopher Lee plays an American FBI agent in it. And and of course it's not it's not his voice either. <laughs> he's, he's he's doing the performance in German. Yeah, but that's great because the the I have the the both both uh, uh, language versions of that if you need it. Oh, so I, I have him I have him speaking in 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 his voice his natural voice in English. Oh, did he? Oh, he did his own dubbing for the English track of that. Yeah, he did his own dubbing for the English track, and of course there's the. 
purely German track as well. I've got both. Yeah, we so we, I can, we chose the German track. I wasn't aware that he did his own voice. I was just expecting it to be like all the other German movies that I've seen. No, nope, no, nope, it's, it's wild. You're like, wait a minute, that's in sync, and wait a minute, that's his voice. You know, and you're like, okay, he didn't dub this. So holy, it was crap. very cool. Okay, well, uh, well, anyway, it's the. It, the, you're, you're right. The actor who plays uh, Savini in this in this film, he was in several of the Krimis, and I, I started looking at his list of credits and realized, oh my god, I think I've seen him in like ten movies. I mean, he was in- yeah. He's like a no. Uh, oh, I'm trying to think of a good uh, analogy. He's like a, 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 an, um, an Elisha Cook Jr. <laughs> yes, yeah, that's a good that's a good choice. Yeah, he's like neither villain nor hero. He sort of like wears the different hat in each film. He can be he can be like one of the rogues gallery bad guys, yeah. but he's usually not the bad guy uh, and like the villain. And or he's you know a blackmailer or he's a a, a valet in this one. He and and you know he has su- he has such great fun in the beginning of the film with those. Uh, you know, talking to the camera or not talking to the camera. You know, it's 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 a trick of the camera work. Yeah, uh, I hope people will will be um, inclined to seek out this film because it's really one of the. And we can um, back it up here and talk about your. Uh, you were talking about the adaptation, but I just wanted to say that, like right from the beginning of this film, it is very different from its three predecessors. It it has it strikes a completely different tone. I'm sure you've noticed. Oh yeah, definitely. And one of one heavily of postmodernism, and it kind of carries all throughout the film. It stands completely apart from like an, really any other Krimi, uh, in that in that its director, its cast, and it's like its willingness to go into slapstick territory, is you know it, it's it really is a pretty remarkable film. It's it's sort of like uh, it's not the greatest Krimi as a result because yeah, yeah I, would, you know, I would agree yeah. It's uh, it because it's it's got this sort of Monty Python esque um, approach, the satire going on, but it, it's and it's all Germans doing it too. So it's just such a fascinating film. Well, the, that's one of the. I, I always feel like they're, 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 no matter where you start talking about the Krimis, it's almost as if you you really feel like, oh wait a minute, I think I started in the wrong place. We should emphasize to people that the weirdest thing about the 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 Krimis at all is that they are German-made films based on British novels set in England, for the most part, that really feel like... They really feel like nothing else that was being made at the time. <laughs> That's so true. They, they're, they're, they, and it's not just because they're this weird amalgam... Because here's the thing. I mean, the the Wallace novel... After uh, Edgar Wallace died in, uh, I think, 32... His novels, he, he, he had been, for the first part of the, the 20th century, Edgar Wallace had been, like, if not the most popular novelist and writer on the planet Earth in English. He was pretty damn close. Yeah, but after, after he passed away, he passed away after he had done some initial work on the screenplay for King Kong. Uh-huh. Uh, but he never, he never even saw the film come out. Or, or I think, go into production. But... At the, uh, by the time he, you know, like by like ten years after him passing away, his star had kind of faded in the English-speaking world. But his his books had been translated into a you know like thirty other languages, and in Germany, his popularity really took off. And so, 
if that that's one of the reasons, obviously, why when they started adapting these things in '59, they they felt like they really probably ought to stick to the damn novels because otherwise the people who love those books are just going to cry foul and be very angry and the box office will exactly, suffer. Exactly. Yeah, I, I couldn't have uh, said it better. That, that's why there was a certain amount of fidelity in the beginning. Yeah, and and the thing is though, you're right. This the the Green Archer was uh, the third one. So uh, by the time they get to this one, they have had two major successes under their belt. And actually, is it, the Green, if the Green Archer is the third one, that's actually I think the first two were actually shot. Uh, they're German productions, but I think they were shot in a different country. Yeah, in, in, in Denmark. Right, yeah. right, right. So, so this is this is this is this has all the hallmarks of what I like what I like to refer to with rock bands as third album weirdness. Which, ah, yeah, that's very very appropriate analogy. Yeah, where where, you, where you've had you know you you've you've worked really hard on that first album, and it's got all the gems that you've 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 polished to to a shine over the years that you knew those were gonna be those were gonna make it, and you were so afraid of the sophomore slump that that second one you you bit down hard and you concentrated in that second film or that second album, boy, you worked your ass off and and you and you hit it out of the park again. Yes. But by the third one, you're kind of feeling your oats. You're like, hey, you know, the success. That's called the artist, yes. <laughs> yeah, you know, the, I've really kind of got this down. And so you get a little looser. And the looseness, you're right, it starts to creep into this one a little bit with the humor. Uh, and I don't and I, and I don't find the humor to be off-putting in any way. I just find that there's... Well, I think it really works. It's just very different, you know. Yeah, yeah. And, and it is uh, what, what I find strange about it. Is that it would be possible the the first the first analogy that almost parallel to me and of course it's like a decade too soon uh, or almost a decade too soon is I almost immediately want I I, I want to say that the, the the humor in the Green Archer and a few of these crummy films of the period is Python esque. Yeah, very much so, and that's a pre Python. These are pre-Python era films, so yeah. they're certainly tapping into you know cultural uh, factors about what is humorous in in Britain and that long tradition, uh, and and they're having a go at it, you know. And, and yet, but the thing is, is is their go at it actually is in this particular case, it's it's a very funny impersonation of a British of British humor. Yeah. <laughs> But yeah. that, but that's what it is. Is it's a it's an imitation. It's sort of a, a pastiche on uh, what it what was British humor with the O U R and uh, and and yet to find <laughs> yes like, with the O U R exactly. <laughs> seem to find just the right tone, and um, it, but it, it you know Rod it's 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 a real anomaly because um, Green Archer is really the only. I mean it's it's. You know, it's Roland's. I believe it's Roland's last Crimi for Rialto. I'm, not, I'm pretty sure. Uh, and the, the director, his last one, yeah. His last one for yeah for Rialto, exactly. And its its tone is you know, it's the first one shot in Hamburg and environs, and its tone is neither you know creepy nor satirical nor spoofy nor um, you know edge of your seat, and yet it's kind of like all of those things. I kind of marvel at the schizophrenic nature of this film. It's kind of all over the place. And by the end, you know, when we have the 
I'll just call it the assault so that viewers aren't, are, you know, disappointed. You're like, what, my, what is that? What am I watching? Yes. Well, even that, I was like, okay, well, uh, you're, you're alluding to the, the final act of, of the story. Uh, and I'll and I'll just say to people that uh, this this isn't really much of a much of a spoiler. I'll just say that there is kind of a siege of uh, Gar Castle, which is where most of the story is set. And uh, it, it, in the no- I'll tell you this: in the novel, the siege goes on for a few days. Oh wow! Oh my god! Yeah, it get. I mean, it, yeah. I mean, uh, Abel Bellamy, the the main the the the, main, the bad guy. He's uh he's he has set himself up into a position to to uh to take on all comers in this place. Of course, he's in a castle that's built for this kind of thing in the first place. And, uh, you know, they, they shrink that confrontation down e- quite a bit in, in the film to the point where it takes place over the course of, I don't know, about an hour and a half at most. But the, uh, the speed, well, the, well, here's the thing. Um, here, here's, here's the weird trigger I've got to pull because, uh, not only, and I, and I think I may have told you this earlier, but not only had uh, I seen uh, the, this, the 1961 film we're talking about uh, at the adaptation of the novel, but I'd also recently watched the, the 1940 Republic's, well, no, it's a, I think it's a Columbia serial. Yeah, uh, exactly. I've got a yeah, couple that, hobby cards for it, Rod, but I, I haven't watched it yet. It's it, it, You know, it's worth seeing because essentially they took... If if you were at all familiar with uh, either Republic or Columbia or any really kind of the chapter plays or serials of the period, uh, you'll understand that what they did was they took the novel uh, and then kind of you know they've got to find a way to structure it out into fifteen chapters essentially, and so what they've done is confused everything <laughs> to the point where the, the nineteen forty serial. Kind of can, it, it kind of contains a few of the plot elements and some of the relationships in several of the characters that are in the novel, kind of roughly shoved into the standard serial template. And you, you'll, you'll if you ever watch it, you'll see what I mean. Where, yeah, Abel Bellamy is a scumbag. He owns, you know, he owns Gar Castle. He's he's got somebody locked up. But the the you know the the serial, it's a serial. It, it's not. Uh, it is far from being a close adaptation of the novel by any stretch. As a serial, would you was it successful for you, or or was it hit and miss? Well, here's the thing. I, I, I have to I have to preface what I'm about to say with this statement. I rarely dislike a serial because I love the format and the structure. There's something about them that draws me in, you know, the little, basically the, the 15 minute long chapters. And I kind of force myself to not do that thing where I watch multiple episodes at a shot so that it actually kind of sinks in over time. You know, even if I'm just doing like one a day, there's no way I could space it out over 15 weeks. Like you would have seen them in a, in a theater, uh, in, nice. in, in, for, in 1940, I would, I would lose my mind and just you know, probably <laughs> waiting. Yeah, so like I can't, yes. I can't do it. Wasn't what happened next, uh, but the uh, the it works for what it is. But uh, what was amazing is that uh, while we were, while we were watching the serial over the course of you know about a you know, two week period or so, is when I started reading the novel. And so I was about halfway through the novel watching the serial and realizing, oh yeah, they've butchered the hell out of this novel, <laughs> trying to find ways to make 
pieces of this fit into the standard way they they write a, a serial. And, and it wound up working against them yeah. to, to a degree. Uh, there, uh, don't get me wrong. I mean, it definitely get, it definitely uh, switches things up and changes things around enough to make it stand out a little bit as you know as as a little bit different from the standard Columbia serial of the forties. Uh, and, right. and therefore, you know, honestly, any variation on that theme is is welcome after a certain point, especially if you're like a, if you're a lunatic like me and you've decided I'm going to try to watch them all because I'm insane. Uh, but the uh, it's a successful serial. I don't know that I would ever call it a successful adaptation of Edgar Wallace's novel. Right. Here's the thing. Uh, well, I learned from your book that actually there was a there was a silent adaptation of the Green Archer. Apparently so, yeah. Like so, when I was doing all the research in Germany, um, different archives, I was you know just like with the book on Spain, I tried to get the most accurate data on that stuff. Um, and yes, there was a, an, an even earlier version, a silent version of it. So. Uh, which I've not seen. Uh, it might be lost. I can't remember off the top of my head. Yeah, I, I wondered if you'd ever seen it because it's it's it, it'd be, it would be I would be curious to see it just for for comparison's sake and for nothing else. Yeah, I believe I've seen some art on it. I'm just not sure if it uh, if it if prints exist though. But the uh, the sixty one film it, it does feel like it does feel like. It, it feel, the film feels like it's shot out of a cannon. Like they they have all they have a, they, it's like they wrote the script, and they timed out the script, and they realized, oh shit, this is a two hour script. Well, what do we cut out of it? Oh well, we can't cut much. What we're gonna do is we're just gonna have it run at like one point yeah, yeah. five speed. Let's just let's just race through this damn thing like maniacs. We'll put it all in. Yeah, and poor Karen Dor has to do like she has to carry the whole whole film literally on her. Oh, I, know. Physical, you know, I mean, like, it's amazing. I was just watching it earlier today again, and I'm like, when they're, when they're, oh, I don't want to give things away too much, but it's just what, it's always, it's always interesting to watch, you know, heroines doing the most amazing things in pencil skirts, stockings, and, and heels. <laughs> well, like, there were there were a couple of scenes where I did take note. Thank God, because that, my memory was that she was running around doing some of this stuff on muddy ground and heels, and it's like, oh no, uh, and and she had flats on. Not, yes, she, had on you know. she had on flats. Thank God. Yes, I mean, I, I wouldn't bring such attention to attire if it just didn't sort of call out to itself. They had that poor girl. <laughs> You know, like doing a, a, a decathlon to get over to Bellamy's. I mean, it's, it's incredible. I mean, it, the the movie is uh, when I was watching these movies and and taking serious notes, but also just enjoying them. I was I was really struck by their playfulness. Uh, this one being one of the more extreme uh, examples of that. But just in general, sure, the tone in the beginning is more serious. The first couple of felt like you know. Uh, uh, Face of the Frog and Mask of the Frog and and um, uh, the Red Circle are are very serious. They're, they've got some somber scenes in there, and they're yeah. damn violent too. But uh, by the time we get to the Green Archer, it's like a total about face. Only to then get slammed back into sort of like what many consider to be, you know, the iconic crime of that era, is, is Dead Eyes of London, which is much more se- severe in its tone. So. It, you know, Green Archer really is an anachronistic example of the of that early first era. It just doesn't really fit in in any way, which I think makes it the fact that it sticks out 
is what makes it so interesting. Well, the to 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 me the 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 speed with which they race through things is it's real. I hate to say that it's both a strength and a weakness. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, and the the strength is that you don't have time to think about how crazy some of this shit is. Exactly. That's that is a that is a big positive for something like this. Uh, but at the same time, it does pause kind of kind of pause occasionally to let you catch your breath. And luckily, those pauses there it's either uh, an odd bit of humor where we have Eddie Arendt's character uh, who's playing you know playing a character right out of the novel. Uh, although they you know they've updated things to where he's you know he's uh, kind of a camera journalist instead of just being a print journalist. <laughs> And, him, and, they, they, and that's the humor is him constantly attempting to find some place to plug in his camera, which I think is pretty funny. And they work it to good effect, uh, even even during the scene where uh, honestly he he should be worried about being shot. <laughs> he's he's a, he should be much more concerned about his uh, his mortality at certain points. But the uh, the way in which well let's put it this way the the the, the failing of this film version. The 1961 film version of the Green Archer is that uh, it moves so quickly, and this is this is the the detriment that it has, in my opinion. The kind of black mark on its ledger is that it it moves so quickly that it kind of moves past the mystery of who yeah. the hell the Green Archer could be. It's a very unsatisfying sort of Scooby moment there. Yeah, at the end. yeah, and the thing is, it, it, the the the, the the revelation is exactly the same in the book, but because it's been stretched out over the course of a novel, and there are numerous people who it could be that the novel goes out of its way to point to possibilities. You know, there, there were several red herrings throughout it. Uh, the the real the po- the possibilities are really there, and I think one of the ways to point this out very clearly is that the. Uh, the character played by Karen Doerr's uh, adoptive father, mm-hmm. um, for a good portion of the novel, uh, a lot of hints and a lot of detail is being included to to point the finger at him as being a possible person who is putting on that costume occasionally and protecting his daughter. Whereas the movie ain't got no time for that. <laughs> oh, no it's uh, you know as you've been talking, Rod, I'm reminded I, in 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 the. In the book, I came up with the uh, sort of the visual of, of a pinball um, yeah. being sort of banged, binged and banged and bonged off of all the, uh, um, you know, lo- spring-loaded uh, rubber sort of, you know, and just kind of like flying all over the pinball machine. And that's that was kind of really brought to the fore in this film and then became kind of one of the identifying uh, features of the films, which was keep the audience moving so fast that then introducing new characters, no matter how many uh, blinding uh, plot holes are vacant, they won't have time to sort of catch their breath and yeah. figure out uh, that they're they're being played. Um, now, they never got so brave as to sort of like have, uh, you know, a killer that made absolutely zero sense where, you know, they weren't <laughs> quite that close. Although they're pretty close at it from, from time to time. But... Um, the idea that you were going to sit there and try and figure out the killer, um, that really, you know, in the way you sit down with an Agatha Christie film or a Conan Doyle, you know, like a Sherlock Holmes, where you're really trying to, uh, you know, figure out a who done it. That, you know, I mean, that's a part of the Wallace 
um, catalog in terms of the films, but it becomes more about the branding, I think. You know, the R Rialto just becomes the home for the Wallace Crimi and this sort of village of talent that they have there. It's people in recurring roles, you know, Fuchsberger playing this part, Kinski playing that part, Eddie Arndt playing this part. Uh, it just became kind of like a cottage industry. And the idea that they were like literal mysteries, uh, certainly to the German public, they were, they were definitely much more than that. They were uh, little pop culture trinkets, you know, the things that they were definitely working for and wanting to see in Germany at that time. Uh, they were popular cinema, along with the other popular yeah. German uh, genres at that time. And they were seen in total record numbers. You know, the, the Germans flocked to these things. And they, they just became, you know, like the only thing I can tell listeners, you know, that if they're looking for some sort of comparative model is you've got, you know, Bond clearly is, is one to work off of. Uh, but th that kind of, you know, that analogy doesn't, you know, I mean, that's just in terms of like a franchise, yes, but the films obviously are very different. But the better one would be, and I'm sure you'd probably agree, Hammer Films in, in, uh, in the UK. Uh, yeah, yeah. We're talking about very similar economic models, uh, very similar PR and distribution models, very similar um, approach, uh, and, and a lot of artistry and a lot of really gifted technicians working at both. Um, and so the, the reason I bring all this up is because uh, if somebody's inclined to watch The Green Archer, um, yeah, don't, don't necessarily be so engrossed in the plot that you get the big reveal at the end and it's disappointing because the films are kind of more about the, the journey there than the actual climaxes, which are sometimes clumsy. Now, the, the series, you know, would would uh, play on this later on. I, have you seen um, Der Vixer? You know, not Der Vixer. Sorry, Der, Der, Der Squeaker. The the Der Zinker. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's been a few years since I last rewatched it, but yeah, yeah. That and you know, and the uh, and and um, again the you know again the Ringer, the Ringer, and again the Ringer. I mean, those those really do play with some of the the tropes of the genre in a really clever way. But again, I'm, I mean, in, in my in, in my view, they were more about um, the event of the release of the film and a, another novel being adapted um, until it kind of morphed into something altogether different. Well, the, and that morphing, I always think is interesting, and I, I, I've understood for decades that uh, my, my, that essentially the the Krimi films kind of grew up. Uh, were insanely popular and then burned themselves out by the early 70s. But by then, they had kind of morphed into the giallo. Yeah. And, of course, the, the giallo is is a solid a solid genre that works for about 8 to 10 years and then and then morphs into the slasher film. <laughs> so a lot you of morphing going on here. Yeah, yeah. I mean, th th this is just the way, this is the way these things go. And... That, that's a, that's a fun thread to kind of to follow through cinema and, and how things change over time and and the 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 various uh, the various ways in which you can look at um, it's like a, a late '80s slasher and see it being kind of an, an exact copy as uh, even possibly an, an unknowing copy of some of the crimmies and the way it's structured and styled uh, because those things have be by that point have become so ingrained in, in film sensibilities and the way in which people think about the, telling these kinds of stories that it's just 
the way things are done, you know, at, at kind of a base level. And so you're able to kind of see how, you know, a random Halloween sequel has strange uh, callbacks that it may that its makers may or may not be aware of to you know certain movies made in the 60s it's really strange and sometimes you, you start to you start to wonder if maybe uh, the, the the flaw is not with with uh, the filmmakers and maybe you've seen too many goddamn movies but <laughs> the uh, the uh, you know following the thread from you know I always I always back up to uh, to uh, the, the the spiral staircase in the in 1946, sure. with Robert Sionimak, kind of that first black gloved killer thing where it feels it feels like something it, it feels like something so rotten inside the state of crime films at that time that it almost you know almost can't look at it you know full on and this you have to kind of look at it from 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 the side and kind of glancingly because the 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 cruelty and the strangeness of the spiral staircase is the kind of thing that really i see it as uh, exactly what you know blood black lace would be when bava blew the you know blew that thing out the door in the early 60s it feels those feel like uh they all sharing similar DNA, you know. Right, right. And very and much. So, well, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, but at, but so when I look at these, uh, when I look at these things, like uh, these adaptations, essentially of crime novels, they get further and further afield as the series goes on. I think probably because they kind of had to at a certain point. I, I don't know that they could have maintained forever. You know the the strange artifice of attempting to stick as close as possible to the novel that they're adapting. No, uh, I think I think it was smart to uh, once, especially once they had established themselves. I mean, when you're, when, you know, when when you're as big a success as those movies were, uh, you're making money hand over fist. Uh, you know, their 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 international successes. You're, I mean, I wish I I was. I mean, my first exposure to some of these movies uh, seems to be similar to yours, which was uh, Sinister Cinema uh, right. videotapes in the 1990s. And mm-hmm. so the the English dubs made their way over here, whether they actually got played on drive-ins, you know, drive-in screens or not. I'm not completely positive, but I do know that one way or another, those, you know, 16 millimeter prints existed over here. Maybe they were shown on late night television. But, you know, the way I got to see most of the ones that I saw initially were on those, you know, those. Were, 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 can you call them gray market? What was Sinister Cinema? I don't even know. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, yeah, and and I had not actually seen those. Um, the first first crimmies I saw were probably well, I saw Dead Eyes of London maybe in the early two thousands. Um, oh, really? I, I I saw I saw that one. Like I say, on a videotape. Sometime in the in the mid to late nineties, yeah. Yeah, not long after that. It might have been. Oh, did Alpha put out a crappy PR print of it? Yeah, so possibly. It was, it was <laughs> Probably. Um, I can't. I. I don't, and um, but and I had seen a few of the CCC of Arthur Bronner's uh, um, companies, a few of the cribbies there as well, like uh, uh, Strangler of Blackmore Castle. I think is the one I saw. Yeah, we should specify that Rialto was one production house and or one production company, and CCC was another, and they had kind of, uh, shall we say, competing uh, crimmy film series going on, kind of battling each other for uh, money. Yes, yes, they had uh, successfully uh, gotten all of Brian Edgar Wallace's. That's that's Edgar Wallace's son, 
um, they had gotten his uh, his library and uh, access to the novels that he had written. Um, and but the beauty of that, which the public really, really wasn't all that aware of, was that uh, you know Brian Edgar Wallace was basically a literary clone of his father. He wrote in the same style, and yeah. and uh, therefore his his titles, although he didn't write nearly as many as his father could be put out by Browner's CCC uh, and not get into areas of uh, licensing, you know, or, or lawsuits and things like that. It was a clever move, but but again, it was, you know, the, the analogy for people who dig their whore would be like Hammer versus, you know, Amicus type of thing. Like, you, you, you know a Hammer project or a product and you know like an amicus film as well and i'm not i'm not picking on amicus i'm a huge fan but i'm just oh, you know, I, yeah, they were it. a competitor and they were you know it was it was uh they didn't quite have the the resources and so browner of course did have the resources and and it was ccc that was leasing them their studios in berlin in later years uh you know but um it's just i never i never um warmed up to the ccc crimmies as much as I did Rialto's because, and, and neither did the German public, you know, they, they, they kind of, um, it's like the, the few bond films that sit apart from the canon, you know, they're kind of like the, the stepchilds, <laughs> stepchildren. <laughs> I, I enjoy, I enjoy a number of them, but, um, to be honest, it, it wasn't until your book that I actually had a, I actually had a way to break them out from each other and know which was which. I, honestly, I was unaware that um, that the the Brian Edgar Wallace adaptations, you know, that's it's very prominent in the in the uh, opening credits of those particular films. I had no idea that those were being produced by a rival company. So, with that in, with when I go back to rewatch these movies in the future, I'll have that in mind, uh, and it'll uh, I'm sure it will color my perceptions one way or another. How style going on, and and I'm with you. I enjoy them quite a bit. Uh, Phantom of Soho is probably my favorite of the bunch, uh, but. Um, especially now that there's a really nice print of that out too, but they just have a different feel. Uh, Horst Venlent and everybody over at Rialto, they just, it's like the difference between, you know, watching a, a hammer film uh, and watching, you know, a, a competitor who was based, you know, I mean, Browner would be thrilled to hear you say that, right? Because clearly it, the gambit worked. Oh, well, yeah. Because, because the advertising and because, the, the genre and because the casting of many of the key roles and talent in front of, uh, sorry, talent behind the camera was identical, you couldn't tell the difference. And so it was, uh, you know, it was a pretty shrewd business strategy, but the ultimate arbiter was the audience and they never really, you know, that's why they only made a, you know, a handful of them as com uh, compared to Rialto. They, they never, it never was total buy-in. Although they just love their crimmies writ large in general, there was something very special about Rialto and and that sort of uh, troop of actors. Well, now, uh, how many total Rialto films were made? Thirty-two. And then, how many did the CCC produce? Well, that number's a bit harder to to to, to grasp. You know, like when when I was originally doing um, research for the book, you know, I couldn't find like always very accurate numbers you know and, and do you count this one do you not count that one and so ultimately you know the the ccc 
if I I don't have the book in front of me, but I seem to recall nine. Ah. Uh, let me think here. One, two. I think there was nine total. While we're talking, I'll bring up a PDF of the book and, and double check. <laughs> well, the the but I had nine. The reason I had nine in my in my my brain rod is because I knew I, if I was going to be including CCC, I was going to do forty one films, you know, huh. or, or roughly forty films in my head. And I thought, no, I'd I'd rather just do Rialto, and because CCC was really, it was you know telling their story was important, but they just weren't the home to the Wallace Crimi in the same way Rialto was. Well, uh, be be careful. Don't don't uh, don't talk to me for very long because you've already brought up Mark Clark. I'm the one who's who put the bug in his ear about the the book he's supposedly still working on right now, and I've got an idea for your next book that I don't know if you're going to oh, take. Oh wow. <laughs> Well, I mean, he kind of sets itself up pretty obviously. I'll just say, I'll just say it really quickly and and uh, see see how quickly you brush it aside. But uh, somebody, somewhere, sometime has got to do a book on the German westerns of this period. Oh, the Carl Mays, yeah, yeah. Uh, they're they're wonderful. I enjoy them so much. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, there's so there's a lot of crossover between the actors and the Krimis, and of course into those films as well. Uh, and and there's a. I, I love them so much, and they are so much a a different species of of beast from the spaghetti western. Yeah. The Ital- the Italian westerns are very different from these German westerns. The German westerns always feel like uh, their main influence remains the fifties uh, and sixties Hollywood westerns, uh, only you know shot through with actual respect for Native Americans. And there's they're, they're so there's such a different there's such a different genre that uh, you need to rush out and uh, and write a book about that. No, you're you're right on, Rod. The the uh, the Carl May westerns that that Rialto was shooting, with yeah, a lot of the same talent um, that was making the Krimis are are what'd you call it? A, just a totally unique species. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I mean, mean they they do not feel like any other. I mean, the closest you can come to the feel are are some of the uh, strangely enough some of the higher budgeted. You know more high, high. You know A level productions of westerns being made in the fifties and sixties in Hollywood. There's a there's a seriousness of tone and a kind of epic scale that uh, that the Germans were able to to bring to these stories. Uh, that I mean this is this is not what the this is not what the Italians were doing, man. This is a very different thing. Very different thing. Uh, a, a completely different um, aesthetic, a different tone, a different approach. Um, shots. I think they were shooting them in Yugoslavia as yeah. well as parts of Germany. Um, you know, so the terrain is very interesting, very highly saturated. You know, they're using like I think uh, Kodak Eastman uh, uh, color, and you know, they, they are. I, I, I mean, the thought has crossed my mind. I don't know if there's enough. I'd have to look and see if there's enough for a book. Certainly Tim Bergfelder, who wrote International Adventures, which was, um, if you don't have that, or if, if your listeners don't have that, that's, you know, uh, Tim Bergfelder's book, International Adventures, is all about German popular cinema of the 50s and 60s. And so he has a chapter on the Edgar Wallace Krimis, but also on high mat film, and on exploitation films, on the Carl May Westerns. And I always considered him to be sort of like the 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 first real scholar to dig into it. Um, but whereas I, I knew there was plenty there for a, a book on the, on the Krimi, 
I'd have to, you know, I don't own that many of the, I mean, I've got a couple, I've got Shatterhand. I'd have to go through my collection and see, I've probably got about three or four, that's it. Um, well, I've, and there's certainly several a lot of more. the uh, several of the Winnetou films have been made available on Blu-ray in Germany. Uh, I know because I've got a, I've got a set of three of them, and uh, yeah, yeah, I mean, you, you, it does take some work to to locate them all. That's true. I found them. Yeah, I just don't have the region free. I have a, an old region-free DVD player. I just don't have a region-free Blu-ray. Oh player. man, the region-free Blu-ray play, player is your is your ticket to the world. <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's amazing. I know, I know, I know, I know. Believe me, I know. There were so many times I could have justified the expense as uh, you know for for business, but it just uh, I just always usually uh, found some other way um, through friends or the internet or forums or or just you know owning. The, the copies of them. I did buy a few things while I was in Germany. Stuff that I knew I wasn't going to be able to buy here. Um, yeah. Rarities like book, mostly books and things like that. Just stuff that here you just would never find. Even with the internet, you just you're just not going to find it. Um, so coming back, I just wanted to say coming back to uh, the Green Archer. Yeah. Um, it, it's. It's definitely one of the films that I would highly recommend from that beginning um, phase. Uh, I'd remind listeners that there's kind of like three phases to the Krimi. And in the first uh, era of like the first four to five years, they cranked out, uh, you know, four or five films a year. So, uh, you know, Which is by the time. Yeah, it really is. You know, there's like. You look three at three or four different Krimis and you say 1960, 1960, 1960. Wow, they were they made all these in 1960 or 61 or whatever. So they were really flying, like you said, uh, it was a real factory and they were popular, becoming immensely popular. They relocated uh, to Hamburg and set up their base of operations there. Venlent becomes in and he becomes sort of like uh, the uh, Anthony Hines character, essentially, uh, kind of runs the studio. And um, as the sort of like in-house producer, and uh, that's when I think that's when things start to get interesting. Um, probably around the, the, the 63, 64, um, you're starting to get into films like The Squeaker and uh, the two I mentioned earlier, which is uh, you know I'm, I'm just going by their their American titles: The Mysterious Magician and again The Ringer, which was in German Der Hexer. And Noise von Hexer, and those I, I, I'm sure you agree, Rod, are, are really playful. They're yes. they're they're kind of entering their Baroque period, their experimental phase here, and they're kind of like uh, perfecting the the black and white era and getting bolder and riskier, taking more chances. Well, they're they're uh, very, they're first of all, we should point out these are incredibly stylistic films. They're very stylish. They're very they're very interestingly shot. Uh, they they will go out of their way. To make things look interesting, in uh, especially in the black and white films, where they they seem to be, always, I sometimes I will I will I will notice a director doing something interesting with his setups and realize that uh, he he just he knew that it was going to be boring if he didn't find a way to shoot this particular kind of scene in a certain way, and so he and, and so he's found he's found a way to frame things so that it's it's a bit more uh, a, a bit more pleasing to the eye or something that will draw your interest or your attention to certain things in certain ways at, as the the scene plays out, but also uh, I think one of the things that 
this was always a big surprise to me when I first started watching these films because I, no matter how many of these that I watched, I, I was always I, I would always find a way to forget that these movies had a tendency to occasionally just break the fourth wall and you know have a character speak directly to camera, and uh, it's it's usually the character played by Eddie Arendt. Uh, and in this movie, he plays uh, Spike Holland, the journalist, and that this gives him the opportunity to kind of play with, you know, play with the idea of breaking the fourth wall, talking to, you know, talking to camera. But at the same time, this is far from the. It became it became typical for him to uh, end each movie. They would end each movie with him breaking the fourth wall in some way or, or playing some joke directly to camera. And uh, I don't know I don't know what it is about those. I always enjoy them, but I have a history of getting irritated with films that break the fourth wall, and yet this the, these movies never really make me angry that they're doing something like that. That's good. It's a great observation, yes. Especially yeah, if, it's a, if it can be a sort of an annoying tick then uh, suddenly you, you're, you're uh, confronted with a, a franchise that that this becomes one of its defining um, sort of sensibilities is that fracturing of the fourth wall. And yet it doesn't bother you. That says something right there, I think, about the charm of these movies. They have a great deal of charm. And a lot of that, I think, is, is, um, is due to the arrival of Alfred Vorher, you know, and because and, he winds up, directing 14 of these um so he becomes really and along with the cinematographer carl Loeb, the they they become kind of like the the, the work of the earlier directors of like harold reinal and uh jürgen roland um who am i forgetting here friends joseph gottlieb um they define but then uh Vorher comes around and refines and that's when I think, you know, the films start to really, like one of my fa- absolute favorites from that middle era there when Borgers come in is The Indian Scarf or Das Indisch Tuk. <laughs> I, you know, that's one of my favorites. Um, I absolutely love that movie. It's got this really charming kind of Agatha Christie and then there were none type of thing going on. And it's all, it's, it's, uh, it's set in, in, in a, um, uh, and in uh, where is it set? I'm trying to remember. It's at, yeah, the biggest state out, you know, in the like the Moors, and it's the classic. Everybody's got to stay the night for the reading of a will type of thing. <laughs> <laughs> it's so 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 on the nose, you know. And yet it just all works so well. And and a lot of that is just because of Alfred Borger's attention to props, mise en scène, set design. His sort of like he he begins to. Um, cultivate a uh, uh, an aesthetic appreciation um, that's that's put into both the cinematography and the sets themselves. So that, that you know, we, I just call them vorerisms because there are so many of them. When you go back and look at when he comes into helm these films, he just kind of starts stamping them as his own. Uh, and well, and he kind of see, he, he if it seems as if he shepherded this series of films. Uh, through the period where they were were taking on more and more aspects of horror films of the period as well. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And and it just seemed it was great synergy there. And by the, and he I thought he had a very successful transition over to the color era. Um, and then I think both he and Rhino bowed out before the the series you know kind of you know, ran away with itself and and uh, in my opinion kind of atrophied. Uh, and as you mentioned, just really kind of morphed into something else. 
um, that that uh, you mentioned Blood and Black Lace earlier, and and of course that is really kind of like the crossover film, uh, the West yeah. German Italian co-production that they kind of hire Baba to shoot in Krimi style, and then they get so much more <laughs> than they bargained for, <laughs> and uh, yes. um, yeah, I mean that's that seems to be the the first time in which you, the the that transition is so clearly felt from one from like Italy from excuse me from from West Germany over to Italy and and uh, unfortunately by the time we get towards that that third phase you know if the beginning is about defining and the middle is largely about refining uh, then by the time we get to the third stage you know it's we're getting into uh, unconscious parody they're kind of just remaking all their own films and it, you know uh, with less and less success Although, yeah, some of those later films do kind of feel like a, a collection of greatest hits. To be dread, honest, yeah. Um, some of them are just straight up remakes, you know, like like uh, Hunchback of of uh, the uh, I was going to say Hunchback of the Moor, <laughs> the Hunchback <laughs> of Soho, and then the, the Hunchback of Soho is is a remake of of you know of. Well, I, I, th- I think it, you could put together an interesting. Uh, there's the Gorilla of Soho, the Hunchback of Soho. <laughs> You could put together a a, a a grouping of films that could probably last you a, a full twenty four hours. Of Soho. That supposedly take place in could probably that supposedly take place in Soho and were filmed nowhere near it. Yes, and then there's the you know Phantom Van, uh, the Phantom of the Soho or Phantom of Soho, whatever the German title is. That, yeah. It's Phantom Van Soho. And then um, and then what was the film recently made? Edgar Wright's. Uh, oh well, yeah. Uh, oh darn! Uh, wonderful film. Uh, Darn, good oh, God! Uh, <laughs> one night in one night in Soho. We could have a terrific like Soho themed, you know, <laughs> film. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Festival. Well, well, I, actually, and actually, that one was that one was shot in London. So. Was it okay? Yeah, I still haven't seen it. <laughs> oh, it's it's w- well worth your time. It has more than a few tricks up its sleeve. Uh, fa- fantastic, fantastic performances from its cast, and it's just a joy to see. Um, Let's just say the veterans get really meaty. The the veterans in the in the cast get really meaty roles. It's great. Oh, all right. Uh, but uh, back to back to Green Archer for a second. Uh, before I, I have to tell you, I had forgotten that playing the villain Abel Bellamy in the Green Archer is Goldfinger himself, Gert Frobe. Uh, I, I I'm always shocked the. When he turns up in a movie because he's so identifiable. There are two movies that cemented uh, Gert Frobe in my mind as just this larger-than-life villainous character that you want to stay away from. And it was, of course, Goldfinger, you know, man who wants to cut James Bond in, in, in half with a laser. And the the Baron in the Chitty Chitty Bang Bang, Chitty Chitty Bang. which was yeah, I figured. which was just night, night, nightmare fuel for my childhood, of, of course. course. Yeah, me too, especially the kid catcher. He used to... That was that was. Oh God, that was even worse. Yeah. Yeah, the kid catcher probably was. You know, it, it's funny you should mention that though, because when I think back of of these um, these crimmies, they seem very very much in that tradition, in that chitty chitty bang bang tradition. What and what I mean by that is like, kids of the nineteen sixties probably found parts of these movies terrifying. You know, I mean, just think, yeah. think about like the Green Archer and the third act when we've got everybody down below and he's above you know and, and what's going on there I those the imagery there it's so stark and so so such high contrasty 
uh, stuff and it's in a castle and people are, you know, their, their lives are being threatened. That's the type of stuff that like stays with you. You know, the, uh, what's the, uh, the website kinder, uh, uh, kinder trauma. Yeah. I mean, so it's like, you know, <laughs> like the, the, uh, chitty chitty bang bang was classic kinder trauma for me with the, uh, the kid catcher. But when I look at the, the crimmies, I find my guess is that like a lot of the uh, Gen Xers of the, and baby boomers who grew up seeing those in the theaters and and replayed on television, um, absolutely loved them for for the fact that they had they they provided honest like you know scares when they were kids and as they grew up they they then um, appreciated them on a, on a completely whole another level. That, uh, yeah, and that's and that's something that I think carried over all the way through the 1980s and didn't get kind of squashed out of uh, didn't get squashed out of what I would refer to as general children's cinema until the 1990s. Wait, wait, because uh, and th- this was driven home to me uh, a couple of Halloweens ago or a couple of Octobers ago, I should say, when uh, we sat down to watch uh, Beetlejuice. Mm-hmm. And for the first time, for the first time in years, and it's, I've always had a, a soft spot for for, the, for that film, but it'd been a long time since I'd sat down and really watched it. Mm-hmm. And uh, we were we were watching it at a drive-in with a you know a packed crowd in October, very much a, a nostalgia tinge thing. And of course, lots of people there brought their kids. And I'd forgotten how salacious that freaking movie is. <laughs> and it and of course it was made in the late eighties, you know. It's made eighty. It came. To, it came out in what eighty eight. Yeah, sounds about right. So, so, there there are things in that movie, a movie that is built primarily to appeal to kids. Not although not not right. completely. Yeah. There, but there are things in that. I mean, Beetlejuice is a horn dog, constantly macking on a teenage girl, <laughs> to the point where he is about to force her into marriage. Yeah. And. It does not take much thought to realize just how horrific that is to a kid if he's thinking about it at all. Yep, and it's sort of uh, all packaged and and uh, um, sold as a as a, a Tim Burton uh, film. Uh, yeah, which at the, who at the time couldn't be more mainstream after Pee Wee and Batman. So yep. you know, you've got you've got a, a guaranteed blockbuster. But again, you're kind of getting more than you bargained for, Burton. Has a, a a lot of very subversive stuff going on in that movie. <laughs> yeah. uh, and a lot of that kind of got squashed out of children's cinema for a long yeah. time until it started to start. It started to begin to peek through in a very subversive way uh, in in a lot of the Pixar films. Thank uh, God for that. You know what? Yeah, what, what yeah. We, I mean, you can't have this completely sanitized childhood. Uh, yeah, I mean, if if you don't if you don't get some real tears worked worked up, whether you're an adult or a child, in those Toy Story movies, I don't know what you're doing. You know, it's there 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 are moments in that third movie where it feels like Jesus Christ, are we watching the Holocaust here? What is happening? These these characters that we know and love are about to be burned. Yeah, that's incinerated. I, you know, I, you know, I I always been been a big fan of of the idea that we work on our our. Uh, uh, the paradox of the genre, the the pleasure or the the pain that we get from being scared, you know, the people that tend to, to I'm paraphrasing uh, John Goodman and Matinee here, you know, they're closing their eyes, they're not seeing the whole show, you know, and uh, and and those of us who are attracted to all that, we 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 always got our eyes open because 
you know, we know that there's lessons to be learned if we can face our fears uh, and realize that, you know, everything's going to be okay. I mean, it's just kind of like, this goes back to basic Walt Disney, you know, films like, you know, I mean, if they, if, I'm, I'm, if you go back and think about it, how much trauma did we go through oh, <laughs> watching yeah. or reading, you know, Grimm's fairy tales or Aesop's fables. I mean, yeah, the, the, you know, violence as a legitimate storytelling, you know, purpose and function has a, 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 a traditional role going back to, you know, uh, uh, traditional storytelling. And, and, and that has, a, you know, art will always recognize that. And so I think this kind of sanitizing of, I can't let the kids watch this again, but, but you're going well beyond the sanitizing. You're saying, hey, man, there's just like, there's not that much out there for a period of time because they had cleansed a lot of the, the filmmaking. You know, I watched The Witches not too long ago. Um, yeah, in the, the Royal Doll, the, the original one with Angelica Houston and everything, and I thought, yes, this is so lovely and so subversive, and probably scared the hell out of kids. Um, <laughs> and that's the point of it. Like I got scared, you know, watching Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein and Horror of Dracula, all kind of in the same month when I was about four or five years old, and just couldn't figure out that I was so attracted and repelled by by this genre that I worked on it and and kind of you know wanted to know more about it and just kind of ultimately owned it you know sublimated it and made it made it part of my life's work so i'm a big fan of the idea that we can work on our fears and anxieties through the horror film <laughs> well and i think it works even in these crimmy movies these crime the crime drama because they they even cast these things perfectly i mean you have gert frobe as you know this this over this oversized villainous scumbag who you know can occasionally will turn on the charm to, to kind of elicit information from various characters but usually is just an asshole the entire time to, to his servants and to everybody else in the world and then you have on, on the on the flip side you have this incredibly handsome man who is the uh, who's featherstone the, the 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 cop who's investigating him and trying to figure out what the hell is going on here and he's an incredibly handsome man and then, of course, the main point of uh, of uh, Abel Bellamy's villainy is pointed in a strange, for a strange reason that we won't give away here for people who haven't seen the movie, uh, toward Karen Dorr, who is absolutely one of the most attractive females in in German cinema at the time. And so this 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 cruel, vicious beast of a man. Uh, lording it over and doing everything within his power, both behind the scenes and overtly right in front of you, to be this scumbag, putting people in danger and threatening their lives and doing just anything that he can come that can seemingly seemingly can come to mind, because until you know there's certain things are revealed, some of it seems almost just cruelty for cruelty's sake. But he he he's 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 being cruel to be cruel in a more vicious way. <laughs> he has a plan. He's one of the most memorable villains. Certainly, like there's a lot of star power and cachet that that he brings, you know, with his his persona in Germany and and internationally, as you point out. Yeah. In like Doctor No and Chitty Chitty Bang Bang and Goldfinger, you know, yeah, international audiences already well well know know him quite well. Yeah. Uh, and he just he has a blast in this movie. I mean, I was just rewatching it today for for our discussion, and I'm just like, man, I would have loved to have been Gert on this film. He's just he was just clearly having a ball. Oh well, I will, uh, I will say uh, one of the things in the movie. Well, 
what there are a couple of things that are in the movie that are not in the book, and they're added, of course, just for cinema, just for uh, cinematic. I won't definitely not necessity, but just for cinematic virtues, really, which is the you know the film opens with uh, Julius Savini giving uh, tours around Gar Castle while his you know his uh, employer Abel Bellamy is uh, supposedly out of the country. Uh, that is a pure invention of the film, but uh, so is the uh, bizarre little green archer statue that you know if you, you that is introduced there at the beginning of the film too. That is an invention of the. Uh, Interesting uh, of of the film where you know you press down on it and it and it opens a secret doorway there in the there in the library. But the you know these things these are all things that are that are given away there right in the first few minutes of the film and are pure invention. They're not part of the not part of the book. And that's exactly why there was so much cinematic potential. I think in the Wallace novels is um, exactly just for a moment just like that to build this this. Uh, um, uh, what do we want to call it? The uh, <laughs> uh, Archer, you know, uh, sculpture, I guess. You yeah, know, yeah. That, that, whatever, whatever it is, it's it's uh, whatever. It is. Yeah, I mean that that's and then later, you know, under Alfred Vorher, that type of like prop management and design becomes like de rigueur. It's like it, it's it becomes the house style of Rialto because he makes so many of the films. I'm sure you, you when you look at just the next film like Dead Eyes uh, like things that Vorher had to have was like you know uh, parrots he had to have talking parrots <laughs> usually with a big close up he had to have um, I'd forgotten about that oh yeah yeah and, and of course you know circus animals snakes and uh, and of course you know some of the films deal directly with those animals but the snakes the tigers so wildlife in general it has to have a uh, a prop that buzzes and or lights up that's that's crucial <laughs> um, and then of course there's sort of the macabre uh, object to art the 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 uh, for example in Dead Eyes it is a skull that fans out cigarettes you know it's a cigarette holder and you press it and the skull opens up and yeah all the, you know stuff like that he it just becomes a thing and of course there's these sort of trick cinematography shots that he also does uh that come to define um his style so yeah I, i'm i'm totally with you that 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 one piece of uh mise-en-scene that prop of the archer is really kind of representative of of Vorher's approach uh, in terms of what he would kind of like milk out of the series in its visual design, which I, I, I just found that so cool, so fascinating that if he's working at a studio and the product product is already largely defined, the cast is already largely defined, the audience is largely defined, how does he kind of stamp it as his own? What can he do? He brought a lot of personality to the films that he did. It's the style that he brings, yeah. He he amps up he amps up what's already there and uh, and it it it's it's what makes the the films that came after this even more even more entertaining even as they got uh, I, I I think they reined things in just a little bit more after this one because like I said this really does feel like that third that third album from the rock band where they're <laughs> they're they're a little too self assured and things get out of control but the. Uh, <laughs> the the joy the joys are still there you don't you, you don't dislike that album you just realize it's a tad unfocused so yeah no that's it's really is the the perfect analogy uh because 
it is the yeah it's the artists you know kind of like stretching out and doing their own thing that album that you really like but it needed a little more structure it's a, um, it's a little it's a little self-indulgent yeah a little self-indulgent and and yet seems to to perfectly to work perfectly uh it it, it is a lot of fun it's it, i was watching the youtube uh, version of it, but I have a you know a very a nice HD version of it. I just couldn't couldn't wasn't sure which hard drive it was on, and that's one of the beautiful things is that I want reader uh, excuse me uh, listeners to understand is that all of these movies were shot by um, very seasoned professionals, uh, and in particular one one DP shot the majority of them, and they with the exception of one or two of them they all are really striking you know, from a technical standpoint. And uh, you're likely going to see, you know, if you're just trying to watch one of these movies from a list, you know, you're going to sort of encounter something on YouTube, some dupey 16 millimeter thing. So don't, you know, don't necessarily assume that these sort of washed out faded prints are what's available because I, I was fortunate enough to see all those, you know, you're talking about those, um, those Blu-rays that are coming out that have been in Germany, you know, th those were all taken from the original, you know, elements and they're, they're gorgeous. These movies. Oh, they're beautiful. I've got a few of those. So yeah. pretty. And I, I couldn't understand. There was a couple scholars I came across in my research that were really dismissive of these films. And, and in fact said some pretty derogatory things. And I thought, what movies were you watching? You know, I mean, like yeah. at least from a, a technical standpoint, from a craftsmanship standpoint, they're absolutely 99% better than anything that was being made independently, really, and in, on in mass in the 1950s here in the States. You know, I mean, there are a couple of studios that were doing similar work and, and their, their, the products looked good uh, and professional. But, wow, I mean, you have to go back and think. I mean, like, I mean, obviously, uh, when Corman gets to AIP, there's a professionalism that starts to come through in the early 1960s when he's doing the Poe films, or you could look at Allied International and look at some of the more professional work. Yeah, but like the the other the other things that were being made in you know in in the the low budget realm of, of B movie making in the 1950s look look so amateurish compared to these films. These films are like gorgeous, and so one of the things I tried to do in the book was really really kind of like get that across that these were technicians that were you know many of them employed during the Weimar era and then later during World War II when when when, uh, um, when Goebbels had set up his, his, his monolithic media uh, empire his monolith so I mean they were all really gifted technicians and that's what makes these films I think look so beautiful you bring in a director like Vorher or Ryan Oler or these guys uh, and and give them you know something to work with and th I find I found the whole series to be really magical. And it would be my hope that, um, like you said earlier, the the book doesn't have the most elegant title, and that's because originally I wanted it to be Dark Eyes of London, German popular cinema and the Rialto Crimi phenomenon, um, but they wanted that reversed. It's it's for indexing purposes and titles, and I said that's no problem, but. Um, I did struggle with trying to find a title that is kind of a hook uh, for people to, you know, say, what? Rialto? Ooh, Crimi? What? This looks yeah, like a horror I mean, movie. I might be interested. You know, that's kind of the... That's, that's the thing is it, you have to explain what a Crimi is up front because 
it's it's not self-explanatory on its face. It's 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 unfortunate because I, and I think that's one of the stumbling blocks to, to bring to bringing new uh, new viewers to the to these films. People people who honestly are predisposed to really enjoy them simply because of the things that these films are related to. It is a problem if you have to sit there and like define what you're about to see. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's like this is a crime drama shot through with the sensibilities of uh, of the horror films of the period, but with a sly and sometimes sinister sense of humor. And, and it's like, oh, you, you, you know, already eyes have glazed over. You know, it's like, ah, crap. What, do I, you know, how do you, how do you, how do you pinch that down? And it, the best thing, honestly, is to just tie someone to a chair and show them one and then they'll get it. <laughs> and that's really tough, Rod, because I get asked frequently, like, well, let's watch a crimmy. And I always want to say, well, you know, like, do you want the, the, the defining era, the refining era, the, you know. I always start with a black and white one. Yeah. Just always do. I, I would too. I mean, but like sometimes, you know, like if they're like, well, I want something from the color era. I'm like, you know, but that's a historical. We're going completely out of context here. And uh, but they're like, if they insist, they just don't. and I'm like, listen, the the black and white cinematography is just gorgeous. Obviously, I typically go with Preacher with the blue hand because that's the one I think that, uh, um, you know, if 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 they're insisting on something color, and and, you know, th- that's the one I like to just show them because it's I think it's the I don't know if it's my favorite of the, believe it or not. Rod, I think my favorite of the of the color era is actually the the the. Do I want to say this? I don't know. <laughs> uh oh. Yeah, it's 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 weird. It's kind of like I think Angels of Terror, you know, um, is huh. is kind of like a, a a dark horse. It's really underrated, I think. Um, and had the series ended there without having to, you know, do additional um, co-productions with Italy, then I think it would have just bowed out really gracefully. I I, I kind of really enjoy that. I love the the, the meatpacking plant uh, stuff. It's, it's a lot of fun. But believe it or not, the most entertaining. Notice I, I, I snuck into. Uh, you're, you're you're already couching things, so yeah. the most entertaining for me because I find it to be so bad in in many regards is is the gorilla gorilla solo the gorilla gang. I just it's 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 just it's bad and um but it's very self consciously bad. I feel like the film is constantly winking at you. Going, I mean, you've got the the gorilla in the suit jumping into the <laughs> jumping into the. <laughs> well, to me, to me, if if somebody's going to insist on if they want to watch a crimi, they're going to insist on it being a color one. I would just dunk them into the deep end with the sinister monk. Well, yeah, that that would be a great way, I think, to immerse them right into it. You know, that's that's uh, that is a that is a very fun one, um, and I. Is that the last Carondor? I think it is the last. Carondor. Yeah, she she's she's the she's the female lead, and it's 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 one of the ones I saw. Uh, I don't know. I guess I first saw it probably about fifteen years ago, and it was one of those things where it's just like, where has this madness been all my life? You yes, know, exactly. That that's that's what I was trying to get across in the book. Rod is like, where has this madness been all my life? Uh, you asked me in the beginning, how do I choose my my subjects and. Uh, yeah, I mean it's it's really not much more complex than 
you kind of want to write the book you want to read on the subject because it doesn't exist. So um, when when I started seeing these films, I mean, I, I was talking to my friend Ted Okuda last week, and we we were going through correspondence when I was um, working on my dissertation. So this was like 2008 and nine. And I had already apparently kind of outlined the, the Krimi book back then. Um, I thought it came a little bit later, but I was already um, outlining it in the late 2000s. So uh, I was kind of surprised by that. Um, and, and fortunately, yeah, it is, it is the only book-length study on the subject in English. So that, that, uh, that helps, I think, make it a, a hopefully a valuable reference book to people who want to know more about it but don't have the time to sit there and translate uh, you know, a German book. I'm just I'm glad you've written this book because like I said this is and th- th- this is something that uh, it, it's only in the past decade or so that I've begun to realize how valuable things like this are I I, I con- you know I'm constantly collecting and reading film reference books you know the more esoteric the better especially if they focus on you know odd little side roads and subgenres I, I, I I'm a, I am a fan but what I've realized in the past decade or so is that a book like this is how I can find a way to organize not just my thoughts on the subject because I've got something to push against. I've got something that's giving me information and also opinion and also there. So therefore I'm, I'm kind of uh, bumping up against uh, someone else. While you're reading, you almost feel as if you're in conversation about the subject, but also the, the, the biggest plus is always that it gives me a a template a timeline uh, it lays the films out it, it, it's a, it's it's overview status is is the thing that I will use it for over and over and over again to come back to it's it's something that I finally got to thank uh, Bob Sargent for for uh, when he pub- for publishing uh, videos magazine back in the early 90s because it was the first one issue of that magazine is the one that sent me off onto uh, my Nashi fascination because <laughs> it, it had an, it had all of his films laid out with a timeline oh. and commentary from the man himself about his movies and it, that's something that I realized at the time was was very very important and as as the decades have moved on it's like that allowed me a, uh, a very easy way to think about these movies and study them because you could see the progression through time and you understood a little bit more about how one thing led to the other. And the uh, the, the beauty of your book is that this does it for this little subgenre, this odd little, you know, what, 14-year-long stretch of movies that were so incredibly popular and incredibly influential, but to a large degree are forgotten today. And uh, the, the more... The, the 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 more that we can bring kind of a an emphasis or a understanding of them to other people, I think the more people will want to seek them out and see them. And uh, like I say, right now, uh, I mean, just uh, what was it a few weeks ago? Like I say, one of them came out on you know from Severin right. as part of a box set for, uh, with Christopher Lee. So we've got another one on Blu-ray here over here in the states. Um, but uh, until until we have them all, I will not shut up. So. <laughs> well, that's. That is an extremely kind and thoughtful uh, thing to say. That makes makes all that you know that legwork um, really worthwhile. Because when I sat down 
two, like I mentioned earlier, Spain was a country I was familiar with. I, I knew its culture and history and had no problem writing authoritatively about it. Germany, I mean, I had not been to Germany since 89. It was the Berlin Wall. And so, you know, 1989 is a long time ago. Um, obviously, from a film study standpoint, it's one of the countries that you, you, you know, study the most learn the most about and um, their canon of filmmaking is is legendary but uh, beyond that I didn't feel comfortable writing from a historical standpoint without really really immersing myself into uh, the history so that wasn't hard because it's just being a, a, a big fan of uh, global conflict <laughs> a big fan of global, a big fan of the history of global conflict. Yeah, I was about to say you probably want to find a better way to phrase For, that. Yeah. Yeah, World War One, World War Two. Being a big fan of the history of that type of global conflict. Um, I knew the starting point for the book, you know, and I knew cinematically and especially with Krakauer where I wanted to start. But um you're right, when I that was easy, but when I got down to like looking at the crimmies and trying to sort of suss out all the threads and figure out, oh shit, okay, so there's, there's, all right, there's multiple studios making this, all right, but it seems to be like Rialto and CCC are the two major ones, okay. You know, like sort of just breaking it all down uh, and getting a flow chart together, uh, I was able yeah. to kind of like make it a little bit more bite sized because it was a, it was at that time it was just this huge, thing and so like breaking it down to digestible bites then actually just going to germany that summer and uh getting my hands dirty in the multiple archives and talking to the archivists um who were roughly my age and had a lot to tell me about their memories of the wallace crimmies growing up and generationally um how each generation even including the, the newest generation um you know gen z they're um they're quite aware of these films as well uh again just mainly through their parents and grandparents i mean they're not they're sort of the first generation that didn't actively grow up in the last 20 years watching them because of you know because of the internet and technology and streaming but yeah. they're still very much aware of them and um so when you when you compliment an author for sort of like making something that was kind of complex and making it a little bit easier to, to digest. That's, you know, seriously, that's an incredibly kind uh, compliment. So thank you very much. Well, the, the compliment is both well-earned and completely honestly meant uh you you've done you've done a fine thing here and it's the kind of book that i that i can definitely recommend to people because uh if you if you get into this into this genre you are gonna you're gonna do what i did for a long time which is flail around trying to find every you know trying to find them where you can find them and watching them in haphazard fashion and that's perfectly fine just to, to just to watch them if you're enjoying them you know watch them it doesn't matter uh but one day you're going to want to do that thing that uh, say all hammer films fans like to do or all universal horror film fans like to do which is i want to watch these damn things in order <laughs> Not because they tell some kind of overarching tale or there's any continuity at all. Each film is individual and on, on its own, but it is a beautiful thing to be able to draw that line and watch things change as the series progresses. And your book helps with that immensely. It, it, it provides a bit of a roadmap. And it, uh, for, that, for that reason, if for no other reason, man, 
thank you, thank you once again for writing this book. Oh, it's my, it really was a, a, a labor of love, you know, like I guess, I guess all projects um, that in, involve or span multiple years um, kind of really need to be. Um, there, were, there were definitely times writing it where I was, I was unsure if I could still pull the plow, you know, I hadn't, uh, I hadn't written in a while. And um, I'd done a, a, a chapter on, on just Franco for an anthology. And I knew that I wanted to write the book and I had gotten the book under contract and so on and so forth. But I, I remember just sort of going for walks in the evening, which must have been maybe around like winter of 2017 or something like that. I think I had just secured a lot of money. To, I got the university to pay for the research abroad. And I kind of married the two ideas together of like, can I still pull the plow? And I just got a bunch of money, <laughs> which meant instant anxiety. <laughs> like, I got to write a yeah. book about a subject that I don't really know all that much about, but I do know film and I do know, you know, um, the history of German cinema. So I just had to rely on, on that and uh, just being inquisitive. Um, and like you said, the kind of the magic of these, these movies and say, well, you know, you don't know if you're going to pull the plow unless you start to pull it. So um, there was a period there for like two summers where I did just exactly what you said. I watched chunks of these movies chronologically in order. And um, definitely uh, that doesn't always mean that I was writing about them in order, but I was watching them in order uh, because it would be weird to sort of like write a review or not a review, but do an entry for a film uh, that you've watched in 2017. Uh, and then like um, the following summer, you've watched another dozen movies and then you're going to write an another entry. But now you find that like your um, when you go back, you have a different view of those earlier films because you've seen the middle and end results of, of their um efforts so you've got yeah yeah and, and that's the thing is i've noticed in, in researching different different films across the years is that the the viewing of a completely different movie sometimes not even in the same genre will inform my my next viewing or my thoughts my memories of another uh, of a film that i'm actually trying to write something about it'll inform it in a way that's completely unexpected and so the, the mind works in mysterious ways and makes connections that you're not always sure you're not you're never sure exactly where it came from but you can kind of point to the fact that it's that it's that magic that magic spark that's somewhere between you know putting something in the back of your mind instead of the front of your mind and letting something else take over and suddenly a connection is made and some kind of you know uh, uh, some, something that after the fact is just obvious but you couldn't see it for whatever reason until you were exactly. swimming around in other yeah. it's, it's, it's 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 an amazing thing and when it happens it's it's th those are when the best pieces of writing come out because the idea is so fresh and weird that you've you know, you you're almost afraid that you've got to get it down because you're you're pretty sure no one else has thought this before. <laughs> yeah, it is the sort of gestalt theory of perception. It kind of all kind of clicks into place. Um, certainly, I had to watch a lot of you know rebel films. Um, that was kind of like my starting point, which was uh, readers uh, or viewers or listeners. Um, yeah, you know, these are called Trummer film, and they were you know the rubble films that were being made 
in the immediate, af- immediate aftermath of, uh, of Allied-occupied Germany, uh, West Germany. And um, they kind of were films that just, you know, realized and acknowledged the grim reality of, of what, what, what was going on in Germany at that time and the total, total sort of uh, effort that needed to be multilaterally in, engaged to rebuild this nation, just like the Allied occupation of Japan as well. And yeah. so I knew that 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 uh, the the rubble films were the place to start, um, and then yeah, so like doing all that research and looking at the post post World War II era um, and and how Germany kind of was rebuilding itself cinematically, um, that that was a very important key just to doing the chapter on the history to really unlocking and understanding. Um, why I think the the Krimis became such a, a phenomenal success and and uh, um, and it, it kind of endeared itself to so so many generations of, of Germans. Well, Nick, uh, once again, thank you for coming on to the show to dis- to discuss uh, Krimis in general, uh, the Green Arrow in particular, and just uh, the joy that is this particular genre. Uh, if people want to contact you, how would they do that? Oh well. Uh, that's a good question. I would imagine through my my I have a faculty page at Alfred University, which is where I where I'm uh, I'm am on faculty, and uh, it's just you would type in my name and and Alfred University, and it would come up, and my email is right on there. It's Schlegel N, my last name and first initial at Alfred.edu. Cool, 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 and. Uh... Like I say, um, I hope it doesn't take seven years, but I'll be waiting for the uh, the book on uh, the German Westerns. <laughs> okay, sounds good. <laughs> Thank you again, man, for coming on. It's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. for listening i hope that uh, if you know almost nothing about a crimi at least we gave you some kind of indicator of what the genre is like and uh, hopefully you will uh, be curious enough to seek out not just the 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 films of rialto uh but the uh the others as well just to uh, get a taste of what they're like they're uh, they're fun murder thrillers they're fun uh crime movies they are a blast they have a wicked sense of humor as we talked about in the show and i uh, just want to want to once again thank mr schlegel nicholas nick 
uh, for being on the show. His new book is a wonder. I do recommend it if you have a strong desire to learn more about these uh, these movies. That book, his book, is the place to go. So uh, if you have any questions to me or to the show or even something you want me to relay to Nick, um, the email address for the show is thebloodypit at gmail.com. Be glad to hear from you, and uh, we will see you next time. Wants a barbecue, Sam wants to boil ham, Grace votes for Bula Bay stew. Jake wants a weenie bake steak and a layer cake, he'll get a tummy ache too. We'll rent a tent or teepee, let the town crier cry. And if it's RSVP, this is what I'll reply. In the cool, cool, cool of the evening. Tell him I'll be there In the cool, cool, cool of the evening You better save a chair When the party's getting the glow on Singing fills the air In the shank of the night when the doings are right You can tell him I'll be there Bumblebee, let's have a jubilee win, said the prairie hen soon. Sure, said the dinosaur, where, said the grizzly bear, under the light of the moon. How about you, brother jackass, everyone gaily cries. You coming to the fracas, over his specks he sighs. In the cool, cool, cool of the evening. Tell him I'll be there In the cool, cool, cool of the evening Slick him on my hair When the party's getting the glow on Singing fills the air If finding the clink and there's something to drink You can tell him I'll be there If I can find the right sock by 11 o'clock You can tell him I'll be there If you need a new face Or a tenor or bass You can tell them I'll be there If I can climb out of bed Put a hat on my head You can tell them I'll be there